Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. And to express our gratitude, we offer a few freebies to our supporters. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today's show is brought to you by BarkBox. Uh, BarkBox basically delivers four to six treats uh, for dogs every single month about a, around a surprise theme. So some of the themes that I thought were kind of fun were uh, Jurassic Bark, where everything is kind of uh, dinosaur themed, or New York City, uh, Throwback Thursday, Sniffin' Safari. So a lot of fun. Uh, every month to just get a few treats in the in the mail for your dog. I know that I grew up with a dog. We have a golden retriever right now. And uh, as much as he loves his sticks and tennis balls, uh, when he gets a new toy, he uh, loves tearing it up for the 30 seconds that it lasts. Uh, pretty destructive dog. So anyway, um, if you go uh, to getbarkbox.com slash public interest, you get a one free extra month of BarkBox. So if you use that special URL referencing public interest podcast, just go to getbarkbox.com slash public interest. And when you sign up, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox. Enjoy. We're here today with Michael Brune, the executive director of Sierra Club, former executive director of Rainforest Action Network, and the former outreach director of Greenpeace USA. Uh, Michael is the author of Coming Clean, Breaking America's Addiction to Oil and Coal. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, Jordan. Thanks for having me on. Sure. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? I guess you could say I've been serving the public interest all my career. Um, I, when I graduated from college at Westchester University, I got into the environmental field and was inspired by the ability that nonprofit organizations have to have a real and positive impact in people's lives. I, I, you know, I grew up on the New Jersey shore, and when I was a kid, I noticed how the water pollution problems in New Jersey in the 1980s were significantly impacting not only the quality of my own life, I couldn't go swimming and uh, my friends couldn't play in the ocean, but um, I also saw how it, impact, how it had an impact on my father's construction business and the inability really to have a thriving business when uh, the economy was being shut down because of environmental pollution uh, issues. And I saw how a few committed people were able to make a real difference and clean up the waters off of New Jersey. And um, I was inspired to try to do the same thing. So uh, the Sierra Club is often populated, according to its website, with employees who ex- have experienced a transforming moment in nature. 
Um, clearly, uh, you've, you experienced that on the shores of New Jersey with hospital waste. Oftentimes, you find uh, that the environmental movement and the business community are at odds with one another. Um, yet you speak of your father as having a business that was adversely affected by pollution. Can you speak about your work in the environmental community and how you've been able to partner with corporations, with the business community, um, perhaps starting with your work with the Rainforest Action Committee, where you were able to get environmental corporate commitments from Home Depot, Bank of America, Kinko's, Lowe's, and uh, many other large corporations? Sure. Well, I guess the, the most important thing that I would say regarding partnering with businesses or really any element in society is that my belief is that we agree on a lot of things across this country. Uh, most people really do care about clean air and clean water, regardless of their income level, where they live, what their job is, their race, their religious belief. Most people really do care about our parks and our forests and our oceans and rivers and waterways. So I think that Americans and people around the world have strong environmental values, how they express those values, uh, how they reconcile those values along with other things that they care about may differ, but people really do care about the environment. When I was at Rainforest Action Network, our goal, as you might guess, was to protect rainforests and other intact forests around the world. And a, a major threat was uh, the forest industry, forest products industry, logging industry, that was converting ancient forests in the Amazon or Central Africa or up in British Columbia into two-by-fours or toilet paper or newsprint. And so we thought rather than simply challenge and criticize the logging industry, or maybe in addition to that, to be honest, what we thought would be most useful was to go to the biggest consumers of wood and paper in the country and to ask them to help. And so we worked with companies like Kinko's, which is now, of course, FedEx, Home Depot, Lowe's, a bunch of home builders who agreed that none of their wood or none of their paper should be produced by destroying and clear-cutting these ancient forests, and they agreed to put some pressure on their suppliers, the logging companies themselves, to stop logging in these areas. It led to the protection of millions of acres of beautiful forests all around the world and a different relationship in the way in which logging companies worked with Native communities, First Nations in Canada and uh, Indigenous communities around the world as well. So, um, as we pursue the chronology of your career, right, so you were able to have some great successes uh, while you were at Rainforest Action Network. It actually, it was while you were at uh, RAN that you actually published your book with the Sierra Club prior to being an employee of the Sierra Club. And then as soon as you transitioned to the Sierra Club, it seems the uh, British Petroleum Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico exploded. There's a huge initiative that you led there with volunteers to help clean that up. And then later on, uh, you found uh, that, and, and I'm, I'm going to quote you here with regards to Hurricane Sandy, another environmental disaster, said, rocked our nation into awareness of a threat to everything we hold dear, um, like Pearl Harbor and 9-11. So the question I'd like to ask you 
is, uh, I guess, how do we regulate large businesses um, like British Petroleum? When it, how do we balance the interests of business and the, and, the, and the interests of the environment? And then I'll segue into a discussion on global warming uh, and climate change. So let's start just with the Deepwater Horizon spill. Okay. Well, so to, to get to your question about how do we regulate or work with businesses, I guess I would start with the fact that increasingly more and more businesses want to and are taking really strong policies to address climate change in a very serious way. And this is really good news. Uh, many, in fact, in fact, most of the technology companies, the larger ones like Facebook and Google and Apple, Microsoft, have made commitments to move to 100% clean energy. Salesforce has done the same thing. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of consumer companies, Starbucks, Walgreens, many other companies who are making similar commitments to move to 100% clean energy. So from a Fortune 500 perspective, with every passing month, we're seeing more and more large, leading, and very successful businesses say climate change is real, it's both a significant threat to our economy and our way of life, but the transition, the solutions to climate change, the transition to clean energy, represent an enormous opportunity for our economy to both create jobs and save money. So that's good news. The challenge is that, to be really honest, there's a lot of money to be made in dirty fuels. There's a lot of money to be made in fossil fuels. And you find some executives, some companies, who would rather pad their pocketbooks for another few years uh, than address the challenge that we all face as a, as a society. So regulating BP or the oil industry or oil, coal, and gas together is our biggest challenge. And I think that the way to do that is to be really clear about the benefits of moving to clean energy because it's getting cheaper all the time you can cut air pollution and grow the economy at the same time. And then also be really honest and acknowledge the fact that there are jobs that are held in the oil and gas and coal industries. Um, some of them pay very well. We have to find a way to take care of the workers in those industries. We have to find a way to take care of the communities that are dependent on fossil fuels and make a transition that's fair for people and the towns who get a lot of their revenue from these operations. We should be able to do that. We should be able to have a rational discourse about what we need to do, how we need to respond to this threat, and how in responding we can be really fair about the people that would be affected by a transition. So um, I'm wondering what that looks like. If you have a community in Louisiana or in Texas on the coastline where oil plays a large role in their economy, are you saying let's transition away from oil derricks and offshore oil rigs and move towards uh, desert solar farms or the manufacturing of sol solar panels that might employ those very same people? Well, desert solar farms aren't going to do much good in Louisiana. So that's uh, – I, I can't with a serious face offer that as a solution. If I go down yeah. to the Gulf and I say, hey, folks, we've got to move off of fossil fuels, let's put a, a big solar farm in your desert in Louisiana. You know, obviously I would get laughed out of the room. However, uh, we do know that the capacity for wind, both onshore and offshore in Louisiana, is significant. The potential for solar throughout the South is enormous. Um, we know that just even look at, look at what Germany has done, a, a country that gets about as much sun as Seattle, Washington does. 
Um, and yet they have been able to get upwards of 30, 35, sometimes up to 40% of the entire events and all of the power coming, 40, excuse me, 40% of the power coming from uh, Germany is coming from the sun. So if Germany can do that, why can't we get states like Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Texas uh, to do the same thing? So well, I, I just would like to return um, I mentioned Hurricane Sandy earlier and the threat posed to climate change. So before we delve, um, even though I, and I asked you, we'll get further into the clean coal campaign and other ways to reduce the carbon impact, but I'd like to for a moment to just talk about why that's a problem. You're talking about shifting to the clean energy economy, and, there's, and, and you've spoken of an existential threat posed by climate change on the same order as Pearl Harbor or September 11th terrorist attacks. Why is there such a threat posed by climate change? And uh, I guess particularly, uh, how do you respond to the current administration's rejection of the Paris Climate Accord uh, and their interest in expanding uh, reliance on carbon-based fuels? Okay. Well, uh, we've been witnessing the effects of climate change over the last several months here in the United States and around the world in the form of extreme weather events like Hurricane Harvey that dumps upwards of 40 inches of rain in parts of Houston, Irma, which caused extensive damage, and of course Maria, which um, has left millions of people continuing to be without power a couple months later. Um, we are experiencing severe droughts in some parts of the world that go beyond what might be experienced in 20, 25 years, upwards of 100, 400, 500 years. We're experiencing extreme um, amounts of rainfall in short periods of time, droughts and wildfires and the like, and that will only get worse. Uh, the sea level rise, which we're already experiencing, which is already causing economic damage in places like Miami and Miami Beach and Norfolk, Virginia, will only get worse. Um, the beach erosion that we're seeing up and down the eastern seaboard, at least in mid-Atlantic, will only get worse. Um, the challenge is that we are experiencing levels of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, the likes of which we haven't seen in millions of years. Uh, we know that our dependence on fossil fuel and the amount of emissions that we're producing every day will only cause that to rise. And yet we are not, we're not yet seeing uh, a response from the global community at the scale of the problem. The best news that we've had in the last few years was the Paris Climate Agreement, in which for the first time in history, we had every country in the world, um, except for a couple, agree to reduce their emissions, to admit that climate change is real, admit that there's an opportunity for um, humans to address climate change and cut their emissions, and then make specific targets. Each, each country made their own set of targets. Uh, and to publicly report on that so that there was both transparency and accountability. China made commitments, India made commitments, South Korea, Brazil, of course the United States and the European Union, and just about every country around the world. So since then what has happened is that the cost of clean energy has continued to drop. The viability of technologies like energy storage and electric vehicles has risen. So our ability to solve climate change has, become, has, has strengthened at the same time that the impacts of climate change have become more clear, so the motivation should be to be even more aggressive, to be a little bit more ambitious. And instead, of course, we have our current president who 
has said that climate change is a hoax, who has uh, taken almost every opportunity to undermine the protections for public health and the actions that we've already taken on climate change, who not only has pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, but has scuttled the ability of the EPA to actually enforce strong agreements to address climate change. And it is a travesty. We will be feeling the effects of this reckless leadership for generations to come. It's uh, it's a tragedy, and um, it shows why elections are, are so important and why people need to vote, and they need to make sure that we're electing people who really will serve in the public interest. So earlier you mentioned that you believe there's a widespread uh, desire for and approval of clean air, clean water, parks, forests. Uh, I'm wondering to what extent you think the population takes these resources for granted to what extent people feel as though these resources are being threatened, and what uh, the role is of the Sierra Club in activating uh, these people and showing them that these resources that they do purportedly value are facing uh, such great challenges. So the Sierra Club, we just celebrated our 125th anniversary. We were founded by John Muir more than a century ago, uh, and he and others started the Sierra Club really as an effort to protect Yosemite National Park and to have it be expanded. They would take people from San Francisco and the Bay Area up into the Sierras every summer to, to explore, uh, explore that beautiful part of the country. And our mission is to explore, enjoy, and protect planet. Um, and we take each part really seriously, that we're lucky to be living on such a beautiful planet. We're lovely, lucky to be living in such a beautiful country that has an amazing uh, natural legacy from the mountains in Alaska to the forests in the Pacific Northwest, the bayous down in the Gulf, uh, the deserts in the Southwest, um, the mountains in Appalachia, coastlines that we have. We are really lucky to have such a diversity of landscapes, uh, a unique and rich biological heritage with cultural sites still being preserved. We, at Sierra Club, we do thousands, literally thousands of outings every year in every state, um, all over the country and all around the world to help people uh, explore and get access to some of these beautiful places. We also believe that those who uh, appreciate the value of nature, are more motivated to protect nature. And so we now have more than three and a quarter million members and supporters, people who are working to clean up their beaches or clean up the local rivers near where they live, working to fight climate change, working to protect endangered species, and making sure that we're leaving our natural world better than how we found it. And um, that now more than ever, we've got a lot of work to do, and our challenges have, uh, have probably never been more severe than what they are right now in our entire 125-year history. So we've spoken about the challenges posed by climate change. Earlier, we've spoken about uh, some of the need to move away from carbon-based uh, fuels. Uh, there is a Beyond Coal campaign that you've worked on. Um, I would like, and of course, there are many sources of alternative energy. We spoke about solar. We spoke about uh, wind. Uh, clearly, there, there's also biofuel. 
Um, there's, there's all sorts of renewable, there's hydroelectric power dams. I'd like to ask you for a moment about nuclear power. Um, nuclear power is, was once hailed uh, in the 50s as the new limitless energy source that was clean, was renewable, uh, was not carbon-based. Uh, essentially functions like a, keep, a tea kettle, just boiling water and a steam powers turbines. I wonder what the Sierra Club's position is on nuclear fission and nuclear fusion as potentially renewable sources that could, of energy that could be used domestically and why that hasn't been so much in the public debate. Okay. Well, so first, our, our official position on nuclear power is that we are opposed unequivocally and firmly, uh, and that's been the guiding principle of the Sierra Club for about 50 years, both because of the concerns about the effects of uranium mining, because of concerns about the safety of nuclear power plants, and because of the challenge of storing nuclear waste. Um, I would say that over the last maybe decade or more, uh, added to those concerns are the cost of nuclear power, that it really is not a viable solution to fighting climate change for many reasons. One of them is economic in that solar is way cheaper than nuclear power. Uh, wind is even more cheaper than nuclear power. We can store energy much more effectively than nuclear power can produce it. And the combination of those renewable energy sources plus energy efficiency plus storage make for a much better package of solutions than nuclear power does. So particularly the construction of new nuclear plants is just not a, uh, a responsible economic proposal in addition to our environmental concerns. When you speak about future um, uses of nuclear energy, uh, fusion or fourth or fifth generation nuclear fission, nuclear power plants, um, I would say that we are open-minded and also skeptical. Uh, if there are research dollars devoted to finding a way in which fusion can take place and be brought to scale at an economically competitive um, cost, we're not opposed to that. And we know that there, there are plenty of studies taking place at MIT and other places, and some of them hold some promise. We're skeptical in part because even when we talk to those professors and those scientists, they will say, that a marketable solution that can be taken to scale and be cost competitive is likely a couple decades away. Right now, we're able to replace a coal plant with wind or replace a coal plant or a gas plant with wind and solar and storage and save money. Mid-American uh, in Iowa by 2021 will get about 95, maybe more, 95% of their, all of their electricity coming from wind uh, they'll be moving off of both coal and nuclear power, and they're going to save their ratepayers money. In Texas, in Oklahoma, these are not the most, these are not bastions of uh, socialist, commie, pinko radicalism, but you've got in, in, in those states, in, Texas, or, uh, in Kansas, in Nebraska, increasingly more and more utilities are moving away from fossil fuels, moving away from nuclear power, moving towards solar and wind and energy storage and efficiency. And not only are they cutting pollution, but they're also cutting costs. And that's a good, that's a winning combination. One more policy question for you, Michael. I know that you are personally located in California, 
Uh, this question, by the way, is about state legislative uh, uh, initiatives that might be able to advance the priorities of Sierra Club. You're located in California, a state that's known often as being uh, on the front lines of advancing environmental initiatives. In fact, the catalytic, catalytic converter was first introduced uh, or required uh, by California state law and later expanded around the nation. As you look at the president and his anti uh, and his, and his, his uh, policy decisions, which are in opposition to the Sierra Club, and you look at the Congress, which is not uh, too good at getting too many pieces of legislation passed, uh, you may look to the state legislatures to get legislation passed. Would you speak for one or two minutes about some of the Sierra Club's top priorities for state legislatures uh, to pass legislation uh, that would advance the uh, agenda of the Sierra Club and address uh, climate change, perhaps by moving states towards uh, greater reliance on renewable energy? Certainly. Yeah, we think that that's where a lot of progress can be made on climate change and clean energy at the state level or even at the local level. So we, uh, briefly, we're looking for policies uh, to increase the renewable portfolio standard, which is a percentage of uh, electricity that might be coming from solar and or wind. Uh, we're looking for an increase in the amount of energy storage that's being used uh, by utilities within states. Uh, we're also very interested in moving uh, electric buses. This is more at the municipal and city level, but in some states as well, moving electric buses uh, or moving bus the bus fleets from diesel-based fleets to electric fleets because that's a great way to cut on particulate pollution, the pollution coming from diesel buses and trucks, and also to cut climate change pollution. Um, and then we're also looking for bigger, uh, more ambitious goals. Hawaii has made a commitment to 100% clean energy across the whole state. California uh, considered such legislation, but it, um, time ran out in the last legislative session. We think it will be coming up again in the next couple months. There are a couple other states that are beginning to talk about making long-term commitments to get all of their power, all of their electricity, and uh, perhaps all of their energy usage from 100% clean, renewable sources. Uh, and we think that those are are and should be priorities at the state level. Well, um, Michael, as we approach the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask you a final two-part question. Uh, okay. We have uh, about 90,000 listens uh, in the past year, predominantly in the D.C. metro area, but we do have a, um, an international and national audience that listens to public interest podcasts. I'd like you to speak to uh, this varied audience um, about uh, your motivations for advancing the public interest through environmental advocacy and what you think your or what you'd like to see your legacy as being and then what actions they all could do if they're listening to this episode and are inspired to get involved. Okay. Thanks for the question. Uh, and thanks again for having me on. I, I, you know, Gandhi once said that the, the gap between what we do and what we're capable of doing would suffice to solve most of the world's problems. And that's a statement that I think about a lot when it comes to uh, how our, our country and our planet are doing. We have solutions to uh, the biggest environmental problems that we face uh, in this country and all around the world. We have an opportunity to address them and to bring economic prosperity to millions of people. But we have to work for it. We have to organize for it. There's a lot of entrenched power to be found in 
um, in the oil and coal and gas industries uh, and some of the subsidiary uh, industries there and also in elected officials, um, largely in the Republican Party, but also in the Democratic Party. So we have to work. We have to engage as consumers. The products that we purchase should make a measurable impact on our values and promoting environmental responsibility. We have to act as voters because clearly we can't have people who won't accept science, who won't accept their responsibility, and who won't take action to defend the public interest. We have to act as investors um, and as, as citizens and speak out and use our voices and the power that we have as citizens to support strong environmental action. In my time at the Sierra Club, um, what I hope is to continue the, the resurgence of grassroots activism within uh, the Sierra Club's ranks. And my hope is that we will be a force in moving our country to 100 clean energy. I think you see this happening city by city, state by state, company by company, uh, and um, be successful and moving off of coal, oil, and gas, and nuclear power, uh, and moving towards a future that is powered by um, sources that don't pollute. So uh, I'm not going to quit until that job is done. And that has been Michael Brune, the Executive Director of the National Sierra Club, former Executive Director of the Rainforest Action Network, uh, Outreach Director at Greenpeace USA, and an author who speaks about bringing together the business case and the environmental case for addressing what he says is an existential challenge in many ways, at least one of the greatest challenges facing our society today. He presents an action plan for addressing this on a national, municipal, local, state, and international level, speaking about the Paris Climate Accord and speaking about uh, uh, transitioning from diesel to electric buses. So on all different levels of government, he speaks about activism that can be done outside of government. Obviously, you can be a voter, and that contributes to who is in the government, but he speaks about investors. He speaks about citizens. He speaks about creating a resurgence of grassroots activism to move America towards 100% clean energy, of course, with the goal of uh, reducing the effects of climate change, ameliorating that threat. Uh, so, Michael, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today on Public Interest Podcast. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.